second. Okay. We might have the video. We do have the video. We don't. Okay. Well, uh, so as we're beginning Lent, we are uh, looking at Ecclesiastes. And so the video uh, is a setup for Ecclesiastes. There are three books in the Bible that uh, theologian Robert Alter says are wisdom, literature, end to end. And those uh, three books of the Bible are Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. And a a wisdom literature seeks to ask the question, what is the meaning of life? And so all three of those books of the Bible ask the question, what is the meaning of life? And that is our question for Lent. During Lent, we are asking the question, what is the meaning of life? And we are using Ecclesiastes as our guide. Uh, What the video would have told you about Ecclesiastes is that it is uh, different. It's a distinct voice compared to the voice of Proverbs. Maybe you saw that image of the young, that was supposed to be like a young optimistic teacher in the video, and that's the voice of Proverbs. Proverbs is the optimist, Uh, but Ecclesiastes, that video says, is more like the jaded professor. Um, And so that that was the professor smoking the pipe. Ecclesiastes is more like that. Um, He has something to say, and it might not necessarily be good news to you and to me or to the rest of the people who read the Bible. So we're going to start with Ecclesiastes 1 this morning, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses. The setup for Ecclesiastes is that there is an author, and then there is also a teacher. And so the framework for the book is the author's setup. I'm going to bring you this teaching by this critic And so these first 11 verses are essentially a poem written by the author who's setting up the critic, and the author's talking about the critic's teaching. So here we have the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher of the assembly, David's son, king in Jerusalem. Perfectly pointless, says the teacher, perfectly pointless. Everything is pointless. What do people gain from all the hard work that they work so hard at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains as it always has. The sun rises, the sun sets, it returns panting to the place where it dawns. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around blows the wind, the wind returns to its rounds again. All streams flow to the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they continue to flow. All words are tiring. No one is able to speak. The eye isn't satisfied with seeing. Neither is the ear filled up by hearing. Whatever has happened, that's what will happen again. Whatever has occurred, that's what will occur again. There's nothing new under the sun. People may say about something, look at this, it's new. But it was already around for ages before us. There's no remembrance of things in the past, nor of things to come in the future. Neither will there be any remembrance among those who come along in the future. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
Pete Enns, who is a pastor, Bible scholar, calls these first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes a first-round square blow to the chin. It is essentially that. There is no tiptoeing around the hard topic that the teacher is going to present in this book of the Bible. There's no beating around the bush. The harsh concepts are immediately put front and center before us. And the thing about these harsh concepts is that they really sting. They sting the faithful. Perfectly pointless, says the teacher. Perfectly pointless. Everything is pointless. You may have heard this also translated vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. All is vanity. Another translation says absurdity of absurdities and another merest breath. Hevel is the Hebrew word um, and hevel is an important word in Ecclesiastes. It gets mentioned nearly 40 times in this book and uh, so right from the beginning, the author of Ecclesiastes is, a, is introducing this concept of hevel. And hevel gets translated many different ways. It gets translated as breath, as absurdity, as meaningless, as vapor. And it's found throughout this book. Pete Enns says that as the word hevel is used in verse 1, it is kind of like when you ask your teenager to do something that they don't want to do and they don't understand why they should have to do it, their response in our house is usually something along the lines of, that's stupid. That's stupid. It's stupid. What's the point? And so a really good way to translate this very, uh, these very beginning verses of Ecclesiastes is to say, stupid of stupids. Stupid of stupid, says the teacher. Stupid of stupids, everything is stupid. That's the beginning of this book of the Bible. As I've been reflecting on Ecclesiastes this week, I have found my mind back in my late high school years, early college years, with those favorite teachers and professors that I had who knew exactly what to criticize that would strike a chord with me. That seems to be what's going on in this book of the Bible. You know, there's often just a connection between the social critic and the young adult. And so that's what's happening here. We have a jaded professor whose words resonate with the young cynic in each of us. In the Hebrew Bible, um, if you're looking through a Hebrew Bible, you won't find, or through a Jewish Bible, you won't find the book of Ecclesiastes. You will instead find the book of Kohelet. This book is called Kohelet in the Hebrew Bible, and that is the word that gets translated teacher or sometimes preacher. So verse 1 says, the words of the teacher of the assembly, King David's son. And this isn't Solomon. This is one who's from David's family tree, but many generations down the Davidic line. Kohelet is the source of all the criticism that we're about to read. Kohelet is the source of the angst in this book. And a few think that Kohelet is a proper name, which is interesting because in Hebrew it has a feminine ending. So if it is a proper name, then this book was written by a woman. But most say that Kohelet is a title. That Kohelet is a job description. And so the word is translated teacher, it's translated preacher, it's translated one who convenes the assembly, one who gathers the assembly. 
But I really like the thought from Robert Alter that this could even be correctly translated as just one who is part of the assembly. So one who is part of the assembly, not an endorsed leader, simply one of the group, rises out of, out of the group to speak and to teach. And really that is essentially the truth about this particular book in the Bible. It is one distinct voice among many. It is a distinctly pessimistic voice among so many optimistic voices in the Bible. It reminds me of the concept that we've talked about in here of the Hyoka. You've heard us talk and teach on the concept of the Hyoka from the Lakota tribe. The Hyoka was a satirist who moved and spoke um, and reacted in the opposite fashion of the people around them. So the Hyoka might ride a horse backwards or wear their clothes inside out. Or when it's cold, they might complain that it was really hot. They would ask difficult questions, and they would say things that others were afraid to say. And what I've wondered about the Hyoka is if the Hyoka didn't keep the tribe free of shame. You know, an, an, emotional, an emotional housekeeper of sorts, dusting the shame off the people around them by living out the concept that everyone belongs because when the Hyoka belongs, when the opposite of common wisdom is included, then everything belongs. Everyone belongs. Well, here it is. Here it is, the Hyoka of the Bible, the voice of the other. It's endorsed, and it's canonized, and it shows up in my Bible. It's Ecclesiastes. The Talmud does say that there were sages there were scholars who sought to take this book of the Bible out of the canon. But they weren't successful. It's still in there. This very skeptical, critical, pained voice was given a place and was given credibility. And that should count for something for you and for me. The observation of the first 11 verses of this book is that everything in our world moves. Everything is in movement. There's abundant activity in our world. Many things move, but the thing is, nothing changes. Many things move and nothing changes. There's no payoff. The sun rises, the sun sets, the winds blow, the streams flow to the sea, words are spoken, words are heard, and nothing changes. There's nothing new under the sun. There's only endless activity, and then there is death, and there is no memory. That's the final blow. No memory. And that makes my Jewish roots stand on end. That, that idea that there is no memory. That is a radically disturbing idea because we place tremendous value upon memory, that God remembers us and that we remember one another. How is this not heresy in the Hebrew Bible? I can't figure that out, but it's not. It's in there. <laughs> in his commentary on this first chapter of Ecclesiastes, Pete Enns compares these 11 verses to Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, the psalmist claims that the world that they know is an affront to reason. It's absurd. 
The psalmist says that what should be true in the world around him is that the righteous would prosper and the wicked would be punished. But that's not the case. What the psalmist witnesses is that the wicked prosper and the righteous languish. Absurdity of absurdities, right? Stupid of stupids. But in the psalm, there's resolution. There's resolution at the end of Psalm 73. Essentially, the psalmist writes, be patient because God will be just in the end. But that doesn't happen in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Pete Enns says about this, you know, I know that the teacher of Ecclesiastes knew Psalm 73. I know that he knew Psalm 73 and other passages like it in the scripture. He just doesn't experience the world that way. The good theology of Psalm 73 isn't touching the teacher's here and now experience of the world. It's not even close. So then what do we do with them? What do we do? Do we shut him out? Do we tell him to be quiet? Stop speaking? Stop teaching? Do we argue with him? Correct him? No, we don't. We don't. We make a place for Ecclesiastes in our Bible. We hear him out. Martin Luther taught that Ecclesiastes should be read by leaders. He said that anyone who is the head of state or the head of a household or anyone with any kind of administrative responsibility should read this book of the Bible. This book Luther said, should be read by those who have their heads swollen and want to rule according to their own plans and require everyone to toe the mark. Learn how to know the world as it is, he said. Learn how to know the world as it can be, unjust and disobedient and sometimes ungrateful. Seminary professor Ellen Davis says that one time she met a military chaplain who served in Vietnam who attested to the fact that this was the only part of the Bible that his soldiers were willing to hear. They wouldn't pause to hear anything else out of the Bible, just the words of Ecclesiastes. And Davis calls this book the voice of holy restlessness. Holy restlessness. Should we be allowing for more of it? We probably should. We probably should. If we don't allow for it inside of the church, then the voice is found outside of the church. It happens out there. Allowing people to say what's true for them and allowing people to find their way is sacred work. It's sacred work and it should happen inside the body of Christ. Ellie Wassell was the author of many books. He was a Holocaust survivor and a Nobel laureate. And he taught that anguish is not opposed to faith, but it is part of faith. He wrote, faith and the abyss are right next to one another. Faith and the abyss are, not, are right next to one another. It's hard for me to imagine, but it must be true. I know it's true. For Lent this year... For Lent this year, I'm reading a devotional book 
that was written by a pastor named Chuck DeGrote. I've mentioned his name to you before because uh, he taught me about narcissists in the church. He wrote a book about narcissists in the church, but he's also written this devotional that's called Falling into Goodness. And in this book of Lenten Reflections, he had one reflection this week where he remembered Lent many years ago. In the first church that he served, uh, his first year as a pastor, he was reflecting on Lent and he remembered a parishioner that stopped by the first Sunday of Lent, like today is the first Sunday of Lent. And on that first Sunday of Lent, the parishioner said to him, I've given up chocolate and alcohol for Lent. What have you given up? And he responded to him, being inattentive. I've given up being inattentive for Lent. It's not an excuse. Perhaps Lent isn't about giving up our favorite treats. But Lent is about becoming more aware, becoming attentive. I've given up being inattentive, he said. You know, the long game of our faith is becoming aware, becoming attentive to the fact that we are enough. Even when we are broken, even when we are needy, we are enough. That everything we need, we can find in Christ. Everything we need even when we're broken and even when we're needy, is ours. That abundant love, that abundant mercy is ours in Christ. But the short game is different. The short game is truly noticing what you're noticing. And anything you notice, anything that worries you, anything that distresses or disturbs is fine. That's called being attentive And I want you to hear this morning that Ecclesiastes reassures us. It reassures us that everything belongs in the conversation of faith. That everything belongs in the story of God's people. And that everything belongs in the walk of the faithful. Amen. Amen. As we prepare this morning for the sacrament of Holy Communion... I want you to know that you belong here at this table. Every single one of us belongs. And I want us to take a moment in silence just to reflect and to notice before I begin the prayer of great thanksgiving. So let's take a moment or two to notice what we're noticing. Blessed are you, O God, who with your word and Holy Spirit created all things and called them good. In Jesus Christ, your word became flesh and dwelt among us, and through Jesus' suffering and death, you took upon yourself our sin and death, and you destroyed their power forever. You raised from the dead the same Jesus who now reigns with you in glory and poured upon us your Holy Spirit, making us the people of your new covenant. On the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread, 
and broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup and gave thanks to you. He gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood. It's the new covenant, and it's poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts, that in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for the world, redeemed by Christ's blood, until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray the prayer together our Lord and Savior taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.